Welcome to Voices, the EISA podcast, the space for cutting-edge research in the discipline of international relations and the audible companion to EISA, the European International Studies Association. This podcast sets the stage for deeper insights into award-winning papers, books and theses, as much as it provides a room for the critical engagement with key concepts in political and sociological thought. Voices, the EISA podcast. Feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible. My name is Judith Koch. I'm a PhD student in international relations and the production manager of this podcast. Please welcome today's host, Mike Rustin, board member of the EISA and professor at the Department of Business and Politics at the Copenhagen Business School. Hi, my name is Mike Rustin. Ida Danavid is lecturer in gender and global political economy at the University of Sussex. And she recently published an article which won the EISA Best Article in the European Journal of International Relations Award. The fire this time, Grenfell, Racial Capitalism and the Urbanization of Empire. This 2020 article uses the Grenfell Tower fire in London in 2017 to show how the making of global cities has gone hand in hand with racialized forms of displacement, disposition and political violence. And to discuss this today, we are in conversation with Ida Danavid. So, a warm welcome, Ida. Thank you so much for joining us. Your work focuses on post and decolonial theory, Marxism, and interconnected histories of race, sex, carceral, and ecological violence. You received a PhD from LSE in 2018 and have recently co-edited the volume The Black Mediterranean, Bodies, Borders and Citizenship, published with Paul Grave this year. Your first book project, Resisting Racial Capitalism, Revolutionary Worldmaking Beyond the State, will soon be published with Cambridge University Press. And as I already mentioned, you won the EISA Best Article in EGIR Awards. It is this article that we will talk about in this podcast. Welcome, Ida, and congratulations on the award. Great. Hi, Mike. Thanks so much. Uh, well, first of all, for the award, and uh, secondly, for having me uh, on the show. It's great to be here. First, I want to share what the award committee wrote in its assessment. Ida Denevitz's article makes a powerful intervention into the debate on cities in the global political economy. The study of global cities has been on the rise in IR. Denevit argues that this literature has largely neglected questions of race and racism. By connecting urban studies and IPE with post and decolonial black and indigenous studies, the article situates global cities in a much wider cartography of imperial and racial violence. Understanding the violence of neoliberal urbanism requires to acknowledge the role of race and racism within capitalism and its historical embeddedness. The article makes an important contribution to the fields of political economy, urban studies, and international relations. It is an outstanding and sophisticated example of theoretical pluralism and integration that significantly broadens the perspective on structural violence in IR. 
So, you know, my first question to you is, what was it about the Grenfell fire that prompted you to write this article? I think I should maybe start by uh, apologizing in case there's any background noise um, during this talk. So I live very close to a building site in London. In some ways, um, I suppose that this is quite appropriate, right, given that the article focuses on, on, the, so-called, on the so-called renewal, on the upscaling of cities like uh, London. And so that's literally uh, what you might be able to hear in the background. Um, I do want to start on a slightly more personal note by, by saying that Grenfell and the fire there in many ways felt very close to me, as I'm sure it did for so many people. So I've lived in London uh, since I was an undergrad, and for many of those years, I was based in the Greater Notting Hill in North Kensington area, and of course, that's where Grenfell Towers stood. But during the year uh, that I lived there, the area it just it changed so quickly, right? The Moroccan grocery stores that had been such a constant presence on Goulburn Road, well, they quietly started to disappear. Same thing with uh, the music venues on Portobello Road. One by one, they were forced to shut. Um, same thing with uh, many of the antique shops on Westbourne Grove, right? Um, they started to leave the area. And instead, you know, came the upmarket restaurants and the high-end organic food shops and so on and so forth. Um, as a student living in the area, it was, it was very clear uh, to me what kind of community was being pushed out of the neighborhood. And equally, of course, who it was that the area was being redesigned for. Now, when the fire happened, I didn't actually think that I would later end up writing about it. Uh, At the time, I was in the final year of my PhD, and I was busy finishing my dissertation. In fact, it was only later that year when I was a visiting PhD student at UC Berkeley that I came back to Grenfell, or I suppose Grenfell in many ways came back to me. But one of the things that I was increasingly struck by as I was following the news uh, back in the UK was the fact that in so many of the discussions that took place after the fire, there was a lot of emphasis on um, the cladding material that had covered the building. Uh, Many people also talked about the failure of the fire brigade's stay put policy. And then more broadly, there was a lot of conversation and emphasis on the neoliberalization of the British housing market. Uh, and on the violence of austerity and of privatization. Often so, all of these conversations unfolded without anchoring them uh, in discussions about empire, colonialism and racism. Right? And as someone who was writing a dissertation about racial capitalism, well, I felt that this was a problem. In Britain, the, the urban landscape is highly racialized, right? Um, For example, the majority of children that live above the fourth floor in tower blocks uh, are black or Asian, right? And this is in a country where more than 80% of the population is white. We also know that on the night of the fire, Grenfell was predominantly occupied by London's racial poor, right? Including undocumented migrants, Nigerian cleaners, Moroccan drivers, and so on, right? So... I became increasingly angry as I was reading about this, but I was also interested in the wider dynamics around this and equally the ways in which they might be part of a of a much wider global phenomenon of racialized urbanism. Right, so in Oakland, which is where I was living uh, at this point in time uh, that I was visiting Berkeley, 
it was very clear to me that um, those who were being displaced from the Bay Area, right, those who were evicted, rendered homeless uh, and targeted by the police, that again was the black migrant and minority communities. At the same time, as I started to actually explore some of the literature in urban studies, I was quite surprised by the fact that there's very little work that tries to think about these dynamics uh, through the theoretical concept that I have been working with in my dissertation. And that, of course, is racial capitalism. Um, and so, yeah, it was really a combination of all of these factors that pushed me to write not only about the global and the colonial makings of the Grenfell Fire, which, of course, is what the article um, came to be about. Um, but more ambitiously, I also wanted to say something about the upscaling of cities like London or San Francisco or Dubai or Sao Paulo and the ways in which that upscaling is underpinned by a set of racialized assumptions about who belongs in these urban spaces and equally who does not. Right? And so that then became the fire this time. Hmm. That it, in the article, you you uh, you also describe sort of a personal account of of uh, of the first victim that was identified after the fire, uh, and that is Mohammed El Hay Ali, a 23-year-old refugee from Syria, who had arrived three years before the fire to Britain with his brother. And so you're right; he survived the Syrian revolution, the bombing campaign by ISIS and the dangerous journey across the Mediterranean only to die three years later in a burning tower block in central London. And you ask, can Grenfell and its dark side of the global city be understood through the same lens as the post-colonial borderland from which Mohammed and his brother had fled? And so you argue that it can, but can you tell us a bit more about how and what one should be aware of when applying such a lens to contemporary issues? Sure. I mean, I think the first thing to say is that there's so many ways in which um, global cities like London are connected to what I in the article call uh, colonial peripheries, right? We can obviously think about the ways in which uh, migrants that come from these places often end up as um, the service workers uh, in global cities, right? And so very often they, they're the cleaners, they're the nannies, the taxi drivers, um, effectively the key workers that keep the city up and running. At the same time, of course, global cities like London play an absolutely central role in both financing and orchestrating uh, extractivist projects in the global south, right? So, um, in fact, very often, I mean, these cities, they tend to depend on that very, on that very violence, including the appropriation of land and resources by multinational companies alongside the exploitation of cheap labor in these, uh, places. And of course, all of this is needed in order to sustain wealthy urban lifestyles. Now, maybe just uh, to take a step back here, I think it's important to point out that there's been a tendency in much of post and decolonial studies, or at least so in IR, to examine colonial violence by focusing quite exclusively on the global south. So colonialism is tends to be seen here as something that the north does or something that the North did uh, to the South. And of course, there's a lot of merit to that focus, but often it also works to shield how colonial violence in the South is so crucially linked to the ways in which racialized populations are treated in the global North. 
right? And so in the article, I really wanted to problematize this geographical focus, and I wanted to do that by turning the gaze inwards, right, towards the metropole and what I in the article call the domestic space of empire. Great, uh, because this is so linked um, to you writing the article that the violence of neoliberal urbanism cannot be understood without a racial theory of capitalism. I think that's, a, that's a, the core argument of, uh, of, of the article. So what or who in particular inspired you uh, in this field of, uh, of study? Yeah, thanks. Uh, that's a great question. Um, so a key source of inspiration for me is, of course, Cedric Robinson, right, and the wider literature on racial capitalism. There's a wonderful biography of Robinson that's just come out. Uh, it's written by uh, Joshua Myers, and I really, really recommend that. Um, but um, just in essence, right, Robinson, uh, he grew up in Oakland, in fact. Uh, he gained his PhD from, um, from Stanford after a lot of difficulty and pushback uh, from the faculty. Uh, and he then spent most of his career as a black studies professor researching and teaching on political theory, uh, on Pan-Africanism and on Marxism, amongst many other topics. Uh, he's the author of five uh, books, and that includes Black Marxism, uh, which is the text that he's uh, most well known for. And it's also the one that I rely on in the article. In that book, Robinson argues that capitalism has always been racial capitalism. Uh, he goes on to say that historically, capital accumulation has depended on a variety of racial projects, including chattel slavery, um, as well as settler colonial dispossession, indentured labor, and the exploitation of, in, of immigrant labor. Um, the crucial point that he's making uh, here is not only right that uh, people that are racialized as non-white are disproportionately impacted or exploited by the free market, right? That is true. But the more fundamental point that it's getting at is in fact that racialization as a practice and as a project that is intrinsic to capital accumulation. Uh, and that is because racism creates the precarity, the disposability and the extractability that capitalism effectively needs in order to thrive, profit and uh, accumulate. And so in the last few years, uh, and especially so after Robinson's death in 2016, like this concept of racial capitalism has gone through something of a renaissance. It's really quite popular today in a way that I perhaps couldn't really have imagined when I was first writing this article. I think it's fair to say that most of the work that's been done in this field has tended to focus on North America and especially so on the United States. Um, there's still very little work on translating uh, these insights to uh, other geographical contexts uh, and including, of course, to you know, the heart of empire uh, to Europe. Um, in some ways, that is surprising because Robinson himself wrote so extensively about Europe. And in fact, Black Marxism was completed during a sabbatical year that he spent in the UK. Right? In this book, he even argues that the racialization of the poor is something that began actually in Europe um, well before Europe's colonial encounter with, with the global south. And so, yeah, Robinson's work uh, on this was certainly a key source of inspiration uh, for me. 
But I also wanted to explore what it might mean to bring this analysis of racial capitalism, well, first of all, into the city, but then second of all, back into the European metropole. Hmm. So in, in this context, can, can you say a little bit more about that direction, right? How do domestic spaces produce post-colonial borderlands. Um, just uh, a, a quote from the article. Uh, you write that global cities as part of a much wider cartography of imperial and racial violence. And the relationship here is dialectical in the sense that local and global geographies are co-constitutive and entangled. And I quote from the article, I argue that the global cities gentrifying and ghettoized areas are more than simply local geographies. They constitute domestic spaces of empire that are intimately linked to the production of post-colonial borderlands. So how do domestic spaces produce these borderlands? Mm. I think maybe just to clarify, right, um, I don't think that domestic spaces in and of themselves uh, produce post-colonial borderlands. Um, what I am saying is that racial capitalism as a global system of extraction, exploitation, and expro and expropriation, that system creates borderlands uh, across a range of geographies. And that, of course, includes domestic settings uh, in the global uh, north. Um, in the article, I uh, I illustrate this, this argument by focusing on the making of global cities like uh, London or San Francisco or uh, New York or Paris. And the argument that I make is that neoliberal modes of urban governance, right, they very often build on practices of urban planning, slum administration, and law and order policing that was first developed and experimented with in the colonies. Um, in fact, policing is a very good example of this. Right? These days, policing is typically used uh, to clean up the streets right, and to create safe spaces for capital investment and for middle-class consumer habits. Um, Kianga Yamata-Taylor very uh, interestingly describes police as the stormtroopers of gentrification. Again, I do want to point out right, that many of these policing, policing strategies that are used in these uh, gentrifying uh, projects, whether we're talking about community surveillance or stop-and-frisk policies, or public order containment, right? These are uh, strategies that build on models of control and of pacification that were first developed in the colonies. Ida, I, I want to ask you about something um, which you also touched upon, upon in this article, but also in, in, in your other works. And this is this interest of the, of the afterlives of empire. So... Can you tell us a little bit about how you address this concern in your work, um, for instance, in your forthcoming um, monograph? Yeah, thanks. Um, so that's certainly something that I'm really interested in, even though there's a kind of temporality implied in that phrase that I'm increasingly uncomfortable with, right? Rather than afterlives, um, I think what I'm grappling with is really how colonial violence lives on in both new as well as in old ways, and how that happens through racial capitalism. And so the book that I'm uh, currently working on, uh, that's one attempt uh, to study this, and it does that by looking at the role of state power in the making and the remaking of racial capitalism. 
So in IR, as well as in political theory, it's still very common to think of the state as being a kind of precondition for order, right, for progress and nonviolence, right? The state is very often seen as being uh, a protector of individual rights and of freedoms. And of course, you know, as IR scholars, uh, we've all heard the story that the state is a European invention. It arose after the Peace of Westphalia and then it subsequently spread to the rest of the world uh, after decolonization. And so obviously these are very liberal ideas uh, and they're also ideas that completely obscure the state's racial colonial history. So my book is an attempt to take this history seriously and it argues that if you're going to do that, well, then we need a materialist analysis, which really seems in on capitalist extraction, exploitation and expropriation on a global scale. And so in the book, I do that uh, by drawing on Sadiq Robinson, of course, uh, but I also read his work alongside black anarchist interventions and critiques of the state. And the point that I make is that racial capitalism's driving force has never been the invisible hand uh, of the market, but rather, and as um, Robin DJ Kelly puts it, capital has always depended on the very visible fist of state-sanctioned violence. Now, right, if that is true, if the history of the state is a history of racial capitalism and vice versa, well, then it follows that justice or, or freedom but that can't really be limited to making claims on the state, whether that takes place through appeals to rights or to recognition or even to redistribution. Right? But rather, if we take this history seriously, then the state has to be seen as a site of antagonism. Right? It's something to be resisted and struggled against. So in the book, um, I try to unpack these arguments by looking at four different modalities of state power. And so I study the racial um, and the colonial history of policing. I look at bordering, I look at wastelanding, and then I finally zoom in on domestication. And what all of this generates is, well, first of all, it's a map of the ways in which different technologies of state power will work both to create, but also to maintain conditions of disposability and extractability across the globe. Um, that's the first thing. But secondly, and more inspiringly, what also comes into view is an archive of resistance. Uh, it's an archive that breaks with the status political imagination that has come to dominate our era. And it's also an archive that invites us to become ungovernable and that through that also encourages us to imagine a world outside of capital, uh, outside of the state and their terms of order. Uh, this this monograph sounds extremely interesting. You know, can't wait to uh, to uh, to read it. But for our listeners uh, who can't wait, neither I would I would strongly recommend to to read the EDIR article because it touches or it builds on the same approach of of co-constitution and entanglements and and the same uh, critique of uh, of of static categories in IR. You're right, this approach stands in direct contrast to IR static categories of borders, inside, outside, and sovereignty, which typically treat the West and the rest as separate containers. So to my last question would be, where do you see the most important or interesting developments in IR today, which built on this critique? 
there's plenty of really great work coming out on this right now. Um, maybe just to mention two areas that I myself uh, find really inspiring. The first one that I would point to is probably the, the broader literature on borders and on migration control. Uh, so scholars like Nadine Elenani or Hasha Walia, Lucy Maidlin, Joe Turner, I would perhaps also include uh, my own co-authored book on the Black Mediterranean here. Uh, but these are texts and literatures um, that variously study the colonial roots of contemporary border regimes. And in doing that, they undertake precisely this kind of transnational analysis that I find uh, so important. I would also here uh, point to the literature on um, on transnational policing. So Stuart Schrader's recent book on badges without borders, um, as well as Adam Elliott Cooper's new book called Black Resistance Against British Policing, right? These are forms of literature that undertake precisely uh, that kind of work, right, that reads across um, the periphery and the metropole and that traces contemporary practices of state violence across these uh, geographies. So that would be a place to start if you're interested in learning more. Thank you, Ida, and thanks so much for joining us. It was really, really interesting to hear about your work and discuss the article, The Fire This Time, Grimfell Racial Capitalism and the Urbanization of Empire. Again, big congratulations on the award. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please find all information on today's interview guests and hosts in the show notes. Voices, the EISA podcast, is available on all established podcast platforms. If you liked it, subscribe now. Voices, the EISA podcast. Feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible.